Good morning. My name is Bryce Hales, and I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC, and uh, it's great to have you with us this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. And um, this morning we are starting a new series called Why. And uh, over the summer, um, we give you the opportunity to submit questions. And um, we're, for the next five weeks, going to be looking at this sermon series based on questions uh, that you have submitted over the, over the past couple of weeks and months. Um, I, I do this sort of like with fear and trembling, feeling like I'm uh, taking my life into my own hands. Um, but uh, I'm excited to do it. We, we got a lot of great questions. Um, I was able to sort of roll all of them in to, to cover every, every question I think that was submitted during this time, except for the question of will there be skiing in heaven that was submitted by one of my sons, um, because I said I wouldn't answer that question. I'll answer right now. I don't know. Um, but we're going to be looking over the coming weeks at, uh, at questions about, about the reality of heaven and hell and about the offensiveness of Christianity and sort of the role of Christianity in our culture and um, about a uh, great question about just kind of being, what is it, uh, is it possible to be, to be a spiritual person if I'm not a religious person? Um, but this morning we are starting off looking at um, a question that I think is really foundational to all of the questions that we're going to look at in this series, and that is this, how do my emotions relate to knowing God? Um, how, how can I really know God? Um, and how does, um, you know, often we talk about, I'm going to kind of go with my gut on this. I'm going to trust my instincts on this. And how do those instincts relate um, to knowing God? And so as um, my, my goal in this series is not to just give you my opinion on, um, on any of these questions, but to open up God's word where um, it would help us answer these questions. And so if you would stand with me, I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 1, and I'm going to read uh, verses 11 to, um, to 18. Let's read God's word together. This is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and he says this in Isaiah 1, starting verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams with a fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or, or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assemblies. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of burying them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, 
they shall become like wool. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? God, would you uh, speak through your word this morning? I know as we gather that not all of us um, believe that this is your word. Not all of us trust that you are able to speak. But I pray that um, you would surprise us, that you would overwhelm us with your goodness. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. So how can I know God? What are my feelings? What, my, what does my gut have to do with knowing God? How can I know anything at all? Um, before I really get into that, I want to, um, I'm aware, uh, kind of taking on this question that I can really only scratch the surface um, and answer it. So I wanted to give you a couple of resources that you might be interested in if, if anything piques your curiosity this morning. Um, the first is a book called Longing to Know by Esther Meek. Um, and uh, if you're a Christian, but, but you're interested in the question of, can I actually claim that I know that there is a God, that he exists? This would be a great book um, to, uh, to look at. I, I'm relying heavily on this this morning, and uh, as well as some talks that she gave uh, a few years back that I uh, watched on YouTube. Um, the second is a book called Making Sense of God by Tim Keller. And um, Tim Keller was a, is a, I think he just retired, but uh, was a pastor in New York City for many years. And kind of wrote this book out of his, his experience of interacting with um, skeptics in New York City for many years. So um, those are both great. And if you want the titles later, you can come up and after the service and check those out. So how can I know God? How can I know anything at all? I'm guessing just a- asking that question about a third of you are going, wow, that sounds like a really interesting question. And the other two-thirds are going, I finished Philosophy 101 already, and uh, how long is this going to take this morning? Um, The question of how can I know God, how can I know that I know God, it might sound interesting or it might sound irrelevant and boring to us. But what I want you to see is that having confidence in what we know is actually... Um, is crucial to living a meaningful life. Um, and that the, the reality is that we all do have confidence that we know certain things. We, we can never cross a street without knowing that um, the traffic is going to stop you know, when the light turns red. Uh, we can't live realistic lives without being confident in certain things. But can we actually be confident? If we take another step back, can we have confidence that we know anything at all? And it can be really difficult to, to answer that question. How can I, how do I know what I know? Like, should I uh, say, should I claim to know that I know what I know? Okay, anybody confused yet? Let me give you a couple examples of why um, this is not just some kind of um, theoretical question about the existence of God. This is something we deal with every day. So here's a question that you may have faced. I was talking with somebody recently, but how do I know which mechanic I should take my car to? Um, you know, you might have lived in the area for a long time. You might have a great mechanic. Um, your answer might be, like, I know somebody who can recommend a good mechanic. Um, but maybe you're new in the area, like our family, relatively speaking, and you don't have, you know, uh, being able to trust your mechanic is an important part of life, right? You want to know that somebody is going to fix your car, that it's going to be reliable, that you're not going to get ripped off, that you're not going to pay too much money. Um, 
how do you know which mechanic you should take your car to? Or maybe even more importantly, think about this. How do you know what to get your spouse for Christmas? Um, or your you know, parents or good friend, whatever. Um, let me just speak personally. Like, how do I know what I should get my wife for Christmas? I mean, think about the conundrum that this is because I know my wife really well. And I know things that she likes and I know things that she doesn't like. And um, I really want to make her happy. But I don't know what I should get her for Christmas, right? Um, so we can know certain things about a person and still not really know what to do. How do I know what to do? Uh, Carl Messenger reminded me this morning about uh, a great example of the paradox of knowing, which is the double rainbow. You know, what does this mean? If you haven't seen the video, look it up on YouTube. That's for Carl, I told him I'd say that. Uh, the act of knowing can be very difficult. We're all certain about things, certain things in life. But when we start to ask questions about how do I know that I actually know that, it begins, it begins to get really complex. And all we have to do, to, again, just to show that this isn't just like a theoretical question. Uh, I mean, look at the world that we live in. Um, however you get your news on TV, the newspaper, on the internet, reliable place for news. Um, we know that we are just surrounded by spin, right? You know, um, everybody is trying to spin the truth to make their case, right? We live in a world where we now have the phrase alternative facts. Um, how do we know what's really true? I think it's true that as human beings, we long for certainty. Um, we can't live our lives without certainty, and yet in our quest for certainty and our quest for knowledge and truth, it can often just be a form of manipulation. And nowhere is that more true than when it comes to religion. Now, I don't know if that's what you expected to hear a pastor say when he came to church this morning, but the reality, it's right here in the Bible. I mean, that's what we just read in Isaiah 1, that um, God is looking at his people, and he's saying, um, he's looking at God's, God's looking at his people, and he's saying, your religious activity is repulsive to me. Um, I cannot bear it anymore. He says, I've had enough of your burnt offerings. Don't bring any more vain offerings. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates them. They are a burden to me. I'm weary of them. Now that might sound strange because there are other places in the Bible where God is exceedingly clear about how his people, how he wants his people to worship him. Uh, last spring, we looked at the book of Leviticus where God goes into excruciating detail. Uh, about these very things, about these festivals and these sacrifices, and says, this is how I want you to worship me. So why is he now saying, I loathe uh, when you come to me in this way? I detest it. I can hardly bear it. What's going on? Well, what's clear in the context here is um, that there's a way of using religious activity as sort of a, a stiff arm for God that, that says, I'm doing all these things right, and therefore you, God, or you people have to give me what I want. And yet, I'm not actually engaging with God in a personal way. Um, as we long for certainty, in just the ups and downs, normal, you know, troubles and joys of life, as we long for certainty, apart from the knowledge of God, religion, the personal knowledge of God, religion becomes just a weapon for manipulation. 
And, and I don't want to go into too much detail on this, but I, I feel like I need to say, having said that, I need to say this. This happens on both sides of the spectrum, okay? And I think it's become fairly common that like, let's see, you guys would be the right wingers today. This is the right side of the aisle. What, how, whatever continuum you think about these things on, I think we've kind of gotten to the point where we've learned to see that religion of the right is often about a passion for truth without love or compassion. And, it can be, and, and so this passion for truth can become a weapon to hurt people. But it's also true in the religion of the left. A staunch striving for absolute certainty that is intolerant of any dissent. I mean, that sounds like religion, whether you call it that or not. And uh, there was an example in the Wall Street Journal this week. A guy named James Damore, I don't know if that's who you say his name, was fired by Google. And he wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal, and he said this. He said, I was fired by Google this past Monday for a document that I wrote circulated internally raising questions about the cultural taboos and how they cloud our thinking about gender diversity at the company and in the wider tech sector. I suggested that at least some of the male-female disparity in tech could be attributed to biological differences, not always and only is it a matter of bias. Now, you see what he's saying? He, he's he, in this high-tech, you know, secular, uh, very smart company. He's saying just to simply ask the question about are there biological differences between men and women got him fired. Now, I'm not wanting to open up the conversation right now about gender roles at all. Nobody asked the question, so you might have another chance at some point, but we're not going to talk about that right now. Uh, but just to be clear, this guy is not trying to like import his Genghis Khan views on men and women into, I mean, his papers is actually very in keeping with academic research on gender roles. Um, my point is simply to say uh, that striving for certainty leads to manipulation on both sides. There's no room for tolerance. Um, on either side of the political, social, religious continuum. And in this place, in place of this, Christianity invites us into a different way of knowing God. Um, a different way of knowing everything, but especially a different way of knowing God that I think is, is personal and it's surprising. And because of that, it's beautiful and it's also incredibly practical. And so my thesis, my premise this morning is this that knowing God is a lot like learning how to ride a bike. At first, it's kind of awkward, but you've got somebody there running alongside to make sure you don't wreck. And in the long run, the goal is not to get so caught up in what your hands and your feet are doing, but to sort of stop worrying about yourself and just enjoy the ride. Okay, learning, um, knowing God is a lot like learning to ride a bike. So two things I want you to see in this passage uh, and the first is this, that truth is personal. Truth is personal. Isaiah 1, uh, God says, I hate this empty, manipulative, religious activity that is not about knowing me, but it's about, just, it's, it's about manipulating me and people. But it builds to this in verse 18. It says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your skin, sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. God is saying, come and sit down with me. I want to know you. Let's, let's, I mean, there's a reason why what Jesus gave his followers to remember him by is a meal. God is saying, I want to know you. I want you to know me. Sit down. Bring your questions. Let's dialogue. Let's get to know each other. We have this idea 
in Western culture that knowledge is information. That's the kind of prevalent, like knowledge is information. Information equals knowledge. And um, we think that knowledge is this kind of abstract thing that just exists, like the truth is out there, right? Like the rocks in a field. And that learning things is like going around a field and picking up these rocks that already exist. Um, but that's not how we actually live. Imagine if I were to tell you that I know the president, okay? I know the president. I can tell you, I mean, maybe I know where he was born. I know when he was born. I knew where he grew up. I know uh, where he went to school. I know some things about his preferences. You know, I know what the president likes to eat. Apparently, the president's favorite thing to eat is overcooked steak with ketchup, right? Um, I know where he lives. Well, everybody knows where the president lives, right? Um, so I could say all these things, I know the president. And you would say, well, no, you don't know the president, right? Like, have you actually met him? Well, no, I haven't met him. Well, then you don't really know him, right? Um, that doesn't mean that you actually know him. Why, do, why don't I know the president? Just because I know these, these kind of trivia pieces of information about him. It's because truth is personal. Truth is always personal. And when we make the mistake of equating knowledge with information, we obscure the important reality that truth is personal. Maybe some of us have made the mistake of thinking that we know God just because we know a lot of data or information about God. Ashley and I used to play uh, this Bible trivia game with her parents. And um, it, I know it's kind of like a nerdy thing to do, like a nerdy Christian thing to do, but we love playing this Bible trivia game with her parents. And then I went to seminary and I spent three years studying the Bible and we played this game and I crushed them all. Like I was so good at Bible trivia and, um, and I loved it and they did not. And um, then they changed the rules on me. So in order for me to win, I had to win the game twice. And they thought that would like slow me down and I loved it even more because I won the game twice before you suckers. I crushed them. Um, but what am I doing? I'm using my knowledge of certain information about God to manipulate a situation in my favor. And I remember finishing these games, I remember saying, it's like, you could be really good at this game and have no knowledge of God. Like, you don't, just because I know, like, the names of certain rivers in um, the ancient Middle Near East, like, doesn't mean that I actually know the God who is a person, Right? What about you? Um, God invites us to reason together, to bring him our questions, our doubts, our frustrations, to bring him our hopes and our joys. Uh, many of us have grown up knowing things, learning things about God, but do you actually know him? Some of us may have been told, you know, you should never question I don't think anybody has really told this, but uh, you know, sometimes in an environment, it creates a situation where it's, hey, don't ask questions. Just keep your head down and go with the flow. Isaiah 1 says you cannot do that. Um, you have to ask God your questions. That's how we get to know somebody. And anybody who's ever met a two-year-old knows this, right? What, do a what does a two-year-old ask all the time? Why? 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 Right? Two-year-old, like, why do they do that? Because they're learning about the world around them. And how in the world will a child ever learn how the world works without asking questions, without saying things and that aren't true and they're parent correcting them and them saying, why, why, why? Right, that's how we learn. Asking questions 
reasoning together with God is the process by which we come to know God personally. We come to know that God is not just a cold, abstract truth, that he's a person. Now you might be wondering, okay, but how do I do that if I don't actually know that there is a God? Um, I mean, that's, maybe that sounds like a great, if you already know that there's a God, but I, if I don't actually know that there is a God, how do I reason with him? Um, what we have to see is this, because truth is personal, we can never know without trusting. Now, I know in the kind of Enlightenment European model, that doesn't make any sense. But that's how we know. I mean, think about this. You cannot learn how to ride a bike without getting on it. I mean, is there, like, can anybody disagree with that statement? If you don't trust a bike and get on it, you will never learn to ride a bike. And uh, you will never get to know somebody. Imagine you say, like, I'd really like to get to know this person. And so I read about them on the Internet, and I drive by their house, like... But not good, right? Like, you will never get to know somebody without trusting them a little bit at a time, right? Um, opening yourself up, trusting them enough to open yourself up to them and reveal yourself to them. And then once you've, you know, built some trust, you open yourself up a little bit more and a little bit more. We know this about riding a bike. We know this about people. Uh, why would it be any different when it comes to knowing God, who is a person too? The idea that we have to have an overwhelming amount of evidence that there is a God before we can know him is sort of like, you know, a young man sending a note to a girl that says, I'd really like to take you out to dinner on Friday if you can provide an overwhelming amount of evidence that you actually exist. You know, that would be a really strange date invitation, wouldn't it? Trust is crucial to knowing God. Now, I'm not saying, like, just take a blind leap off the cliff. I'm not saying there's no evidence. I'm just saying that you'll never know God until you take the first step of trust, just, just a little bit. You'll never learn to ride a bike if you don't get on it. And you'll never meet a new, you know, make a new friend unless you trust them and sit down together. And you'll never know God unless you take the first step of trust. To discover anything, you have to begin to trust yourself with things that you only half understand. That's how discovery and knowledge works. God's inviting us to reason with him, to sit down and talk. Okay, that's the first thing. Truth is personal. But the second thing that I want you to see is that truth is surprising. Truth is surprising. Um, truth, because truth is personal, is not, and not just some distant, like, abstract thing. We should expect truth, and we should expect knowing God to surprise us. Ashley and I started dating when we were 17 years old. We were like children. So we have now been, um, it's been over half our lifetimes since we started dating. Uh, we're not quite to the point where we've been married half our lives, but it's getting close. Um, and so she knows me better than anybody in the world. And last week, I can't even remember what it was, but I was talking to somebody, I was telling this story about something that happened to me growing up. And she goes, I have never heard that story before. I mean, it's pretty rare when you've been dating, married for 20 years to be able to tell a story about childhood that I remember that she hasn't heard before, right? But because truth is personal, um, people surprise one another, right? Does your spouse surprise? Of course. Do your friends surprise you? Of course they surprise you. And the same is true and much more so when it comes to knowing God. In fact, I think it's um, 
fair to say that if God never surprises you, you probably haven't actually met him yet. In Luke chapter 24, there is um, one of the most amazing stories. Uh, story not meaning that it didn't happen. Like uh, One of the most amazing accounts of the life of Jesus um, uh, in, in the Bible. And uh, this, is, this takes place after... After Jesus is born, Jesus has lived his whole life. Jesus has been crucified on the cross. And um, Luke 24 at the beginning talks about the first Easter Sunday, the resurrection. And then the second half of Luke 24 uh, tells the account of there are two of Jesus' followers, two disciples, and they're walking along the road to a town called Emmaus, a village called Emmaus. Emmaus is seven miles away from Jerusalem, and they're walking there, and you've got to assume that they are going home. Um, and they, they are heartbroken. And they're heartbroken, um, and, and they're, they're talking together. Um, why are they so heartbroken? Well, because they thought they knew something. They thought they knew who Jesus was. And they thought that they knew what Jesus was going to come, and that they thought they knew what Jesus was going to do. And um, they say, if you read it, they say, um, we thought that he was going to be the one um, to save us, essentially. I mean, it's a little bit more complicated than that. We could unpack it more another time. But they're saying, this is the one we were hoping in. We thought we knew him. And then he was killed. And it literally turned their world upside down. And so as they're walking along this road, a third person joins them. And they don't recognize that it's Jesus. Um, and you might think, why didn't they recognize him? Um, they didn't recognize him because they saw him die. And though he had said, I will die and rise again, it never occurred to them that he would actually raise from the dead. Um, when people die, they tend to stay dead. And so they, they encountered this new piece of information and they could not understand it. And so they're walking the three of them along the road, and he asks them what they're talking about, and they're, sh- um, they're shocked because this man appears not to know anything about what has happened to Jesus, even though the whole city is talking about it. And, um, and I'm just going to read a, a section from Luke 24. In verse 19, it says, um, They said to him, Okay, so what are you talking about? These things that have happened, and Jesus says, What things? And they say, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. You hear that? We had hoped that he was the one. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. And some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen an a-, a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Now, do you, do you see the, the utter like confusion and heartbreak in their, in their words? Uh, their whole world has been turned upside down. They don't know what to do. They're heartbroken. Their world has been shattered. They're saying, we thought we knew. And even now that there are these rumors that are beginning to circulate that Jesus is alive again, they don't understand. 
And Jesus is standing there talking to them, and they can't recognize him. And so they get to where they're going, and they go inside, and they sit down, and they're going to have a meal together. And they sit down, the three of them at a table, and it says Jesus took a loaf of bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it. And all of a sudden, they remembered. They had what we would call the aha moment. And they're so amazed that they get up and they run seven miles back to Jerusalem and they tell everybody. um, And it's so beautiful what they say. Um, They tell their friends. It said, the Lord has indeed, they said, the Lord has risen indeed and he's appeared. And then they told them what what happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Okay, they have this aha moment where he is made known to them when they are surprised, uh, when they are surprised. And that's what knowing really looks like. Um, Reality breaks in. The truth takes our breath away. It happens when you're riding a bike. Uh, I mean, a lot of us probably don't, you know, vaguely remember learning to ride a bike. I'm more familiar with being on the teaching side of riding a bike, but there's this, you know, moment when all of a sudden it just happens. Like, a new reality breaks in. It's, um, it's amazing, and it's breathtaking, and that's what knowing looks like. It changes everything. God is a person. God is not some cold, abstract, abstract distant truth. He is a person. God is a person who surprises us by making himself known. And when he does, look out, because it changes everything. It changes everything about our lives. There's a line in The Hobbit. Now, I know I'm kind of... I have a policy, no more Lord of the Rings illustrations, because it's just too much... Oh, but The Hobbit is a little bit different, okay? And in The Hobbit, there's a, there's a line in The Hobbit that says, it does not do to leave a live dragon out of your calculations, especially if you live near him. And I think that's such a beautiful line, because what, it's, what is he... You know, why am I saying that? There is a live God... And the question is not so much, will you be able to find your way logically to him? But look out, because you live near a God who is alive, who will make himself known. We are vulnerable creatures, and we long for certainty. We long for stability. And in our longing, we are prone to using information and the truth as a weapon against others. But we live near a truth, near a God who will make himself known. The truth is that you will never believe in something. You will never know something that you don't delight in. And that's why I think that uh, that picture of Jesus making himself known, uh, being made known to them in the breaking of bread is so beautiful. Um, You will never know Jesus unless you delight in him. But like a wedding, think about this. Like a wedding... You make the promise before you really know what you're getting yourself into. That's what it's like when you learn to ride a bike. That's what happens when you fall in love. And that's what happens when you know God. Can you know God? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. He has made himself known in Jesus. And he invites us to come and reason together. Come and sit down with him. Come and ask him your questions. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins were as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. 
Though they are red like crimson, they shall become white like wool. Let's pray together. God, there is something um, beautiful and mysterious and um, and uh, and difficult to grasp in this question of how do we know you? And God, I pray that you would not allow um, certain intellectual hang-ups to get in the way um, of actually knowing you. Not to say that they are a, a contradiction, but God, would you help us to bring our questions to you? To bring our doubts, to bring our fears, to bring our hurt, to bring our joys, to bring our hopes to you, and sit down and reason together with you who are a personal God who surprises us with your grace. In Jesus, would you meet us? Amen.